North Shore Church audio podcast. To find out more information about North Shore Church, please visit us at mynsag.com. We hope you enjoy today's message. I hope you guys are, are doing good. Um, all the Husker fans are feeling good, right? Christmas came early, all that stuff. So feeling good, have reason to, to celebrate here this morning. If you have your Bibles, open up to Luke chapter 2. We're going to be there in just a minute. Luke chapter 2. If you didn't bring your Bible, you want to follow along on the screen, the, the scriptures will be up there as always. Several years ago, Melissa and I were driving from Florida back to Hastings. Um, some friends of ours in the church, they had bought a vehicle in Florida and they wanted help getting it from Florida back to Hastings. And so they asked if we wanted to help them drive it. And they're like, sure, we'll do it. And so we got the kids off to um, my parents' house and got them all taken care of. And then Melissa and I got to have uh, a couple days just road tripping from Florida back to Nebraska. And, and we had an absolute blast. We just got to talk and reconnect and, and laugh and, and just tell stories and, and rehash stories. And, and Melissa was singing me all of her 80s songs. And, and it was just, it was awesome. We, we had an absolute blast those couple days driving back home. Um, now, driving through places like Georgia and Tennessee is a lot different than driving through Nebraska. Many of you know this. You've driven, you've driven around there. In fact, it's so easy to drive in Nebraska, driving along I-80. You don't even need the new fancy self-driving Google cars, right? You can just set the cruise, take a nap, and uh, you'll make it because there is no turning, right? You're not going to crash. You're not, you just go straight away, and there's, there's nothing to see. You're just going to drive straight. But in Georgia and Tennessee, it's a little different driving. The, the roads are a little bit more hilly and they're, they're more bendy and curvy and stuff and so you really got to be paying attention. The driving is a, is a lot more stressful in those places than it is I-80. You know, you're just going straight. So around 11 o'clock, we were both pretty tired and decided it was a good time for us to find a place to stay, find a place to lay our weary heads. And so we pull into a hotel and we ask for a room and they tell us, you know, we don't have anything available. I'm sorry. And so one of those places where the hotels were kind of all there in a cluster, and so we go across the street, and we ask them for a room, and they said, there's nothing at all available here. So we drive down the road a couple more miles to the next town, and we pull into the, the first place that we see. We ask for a room. They said, there's nothing here either, and we ask the clerk, like, what's going on? We can't find a room anywhere, and they, they tell us that there's a big car show. There are thousands of people in this car show, and it's traveling along this same route that you guys are on. And so she said, you'll be lucky to find a hotel at all in the next 100 miles. We're like, you got to be kidding me, 100 miles? And so we just sort of, you know, got a Pepsi and, and buckled in, and, and we take off down the road again. We keep going. <clears throat> 100 miles later, we're on the verge of exhaustion. We finally find a town that we thought, for sure, this place has to have some room. And so before we get out of the car, we make ourselves look as weary and tired and pathetic as possible, hoping somebody will, you know, take pity on us. And so, you know, we just come kind of almost limping into say, you know, mister, please help us, you know, give us a room. And, and um, they said, sorry, we're all booked up. You got to head on down the road. And it's so frustrating. We couldn't find a place to stay. <clears throat> a couple miles later, um, we're still driving, exhausted. So tired that you start to see things. You know what I'm talking about while you're driving? Like you're, you're seeing like monsters come out of the woods. You're like, what is that? Aliens and stuff. And so we come into this really little rinky-dink town there. And there was a small little hotel. And, and as we're driving by, it, it, the words on the, 
on the, the hotel said rooms available. And we're driving, and we're like, yes, there's rooms and stuff. And, and as we get closer, you sort of get the sense, you know, your, your spider sense starts tingling a little bit. And we get closer, and, and um, the, the dueling banjos from Deliverance begin to play in my head. You know, the ding, 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 ding. And I, of course, have never seen that show. The only R-rated show I've ever watched is The Passion, obviously. But, but, um, but you know the creep factor to it, right? And, and I'm like, uh, this doesn't feel right. And, and then so I sing the song as we're driving up, you know, to the, to the check it. And like, I look at Melissa, ding, 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 ding. And she says, nope, let's keep going. And so we, we pulled out of there and we kept going down the road. Finally, around 2 or 3 a.m., we find a crummy little hotel that we were 70% certain we wouldn't be murdered in. And um, we found out they had one room available. And so we said, well, take it. Give us that room. And, and we go in, and it um, had more than enough stains on the carpet and the bed to make us feel really, really uncomfortable. But we weren't getting back in that car, so we just kind of bundled up in our clothes to act as a barrier between the whatever was on the, sh- the, the blankets and the sheets and stuff like that. And then we just laid our weary heads down. And we were so grateful to find a place to stay finally after searching and being denied after one hotel, after another, after another. And this morning, we are starting a new series called No Vacancy. No Vacancy, And what we're going to do is we're going to, to talk about Jesus and Mary and Joseph because they had a, a little bit of a similar experience, Scripture tells us, where they were trying to find a place to stay. And, and they ended up staying in, in a condition that was less than ideal. It wasn't really their first choice. And so we're going to look at this today and we're going to see what God has to say to us through this story here this morning. So it's in Luke chapter 2, verse 1. Many of you know this story. This is a very familiar passage of scripture, especially around the holidays time. And um, many of you, in fact, will read this scripture before you do your Christmas traditions, presents or meal or whatever it is. But this is that scripture, Luke chapter 2, verse 1. It says, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. Verse 4, and Joseph also went up from Galilee from the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which he called Bethlehem, because he, was, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Most of you have heard this story. Most of you know how this story plays out. This is the Christmas um, nativity scene story here. Um, Mary gives birth to Jesus, the Christ child, in this tiny little podunk, backwoodsy town of Bethlehem. This was the night that uh, um, the angels appear to the shepherds that were tending their flocks by night and, and gives this glorious announcement that the Christ child, the Messiah, has been born this day, a gift to the world, and he's in Bethlehem, and he's lying in a manger and wrapped in swaddling clothes, and go check him out, and, and it's this whole nativity scene, and it's, it's everything that we think of when we think of Jesus at Christmas, and What's interesting is in this moment or in this season, Caesar Augustus, who issued this decree, he has no idea the important part that he's playing in the fulfillment of prophetic scripture in in history and how the Messiah was prophesied all the way back in the Old Testament that he was going to be born in 
Bethlehem. That Bethlehem was going to be his birth town. It wouldn't necessarily be considered his hometown, but that he would be born in Bethlehem. We see this in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, where it's prophesied. It says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathath, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. And so this prophecy is saying that, that um, the eternal one is going to be born in Bethlehem. And this goes to a really deep theological place that says the one who is without beginning is going to begin as a human there in Bethlehem. And so it's prophesied long time ago that Bethlehem would be this place that Jesus would be born. And it's amazing to see how the events of history work so perfectly to bring about the fulfillment of God's will. Mary and Joseph and an unborn Jesus at the time did not end up in Bethlehem by accident. It wasn't an accident that they found themselves there at this time. And, and I think it's important for us to remember scriptures like Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 2. And the Lord said to me, for I am watching over my word to perform it. God says, I am watching over my word to perform it. And I think this is important for us to remember because God is actively watching to make sure that his word and his will are brought to completion. And this is wonderfully good news for you. It means that, that God is watching over his word and making sure that his word comes true in your life. That as you read your scripture and as you go through the Project 365 and as you circle promises that are for you, God watches over his word to make sure that it comes to completion in your life. And as you claim the promises of God for your life, for your family, for your marriage, for your relationships, for your future, for your legacy, for your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren, God watches over, actively watches over his word to make sure that it comes to pass. And this is wonderfully wonderfully good news. See, too often we think that God is distant and he's far off and he's disconnected, that he's out of touch, that God is unreachable and then Christmas happened and then Jesus comes to earth and, and he becomes more personal and, and we sort of have this feeling that Jesus convinces God that he needs to be more involved in our lives, but that really couldn't be further from the truth. God has always, will always watch over his word in such an intimate and active way throughout history and in your life, in your present, that he ensures its completion in your life. God ensures that his word collides with your world. God ensures that his word will collide with your world. And this is exactly what happened at Bethlehem. It was God's word colliding with our world. And it didn't just happen in Bethlehem. It's happening in your life on a daily basis. You see, Mary and Joseph weren't in Bethlehem by accident, but you're not here today by accident either. God has a purpose for you. God has a plan for you. The Holy Spirit wants to do something in your life. And, and, and he, he doesn't need me to do it. I get the privilege and the opportunity to declare God's word on the, on the platform here today, but God doesn't need me to do something in your life. But he has you here today for a specific reason because something happens when the believers come together and make Jesus their focus. 
Something happens when we put Jesus in the center of attention where he's supposed to be. And, 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 and as we worship him together and as we make much of Jesus together, he begins to have room in our heart and we give him space. And then he begins to speak to our spirits. Many of you today, during worship, that, you know, during the songs that we, we sang just a few moments ago, there was a moment in there, and I'm guessing that all of you had like different moments where, where it sort of got you in the feels. You know what I'm talking about? Like where, where you're singing and you're just like, wow, God is a big deal. You know? What a powerful name it is. Nothing can stand against. And, and then you start thinking of all of your things that are standing against you in your life. And you're like, wow, God is really, really awesome. And, and as, we, as we do this together, as we make much of God, he takes that place of prominence in our lives. And so I believe that not one single person here is here on accident. It's not a happy coincidence that you're here. You're here because the Holy Spirit wants to speak to you. You're here because the Holy Spirit is pursuing you. You're here because God is watching over your life and he has a word and a promise in your life and he's making sure that that word is brought to completion. That's how much God loves us, and that's how intimately and actively he is involved in our lives. And, and so you are not here by accident today. And so back to our story, verse six. Many of you know how this story goes. And while they were there, talking about Mary and Joseph, the time came for Mary to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And... When we, when we preach narrative, when we preach stories, um, which is Jesus' favorite way to preach, often preaching parables, what happens is the listeners always have to identify themselves in the story to figure out what, what God is saying. And, and, and as we better understand the narrative, we are better able to understand what the Holy Spirit is trying to say to us. And, and so... Uh, when Jesus would do this, oftentimes he would preach these parables and preaching to the Pharisees, which were the religious bad guys, essentially. Um, the Pharisees would always be able to identify themselves in the story, and they always identified themselves as the bad guys and became furious at Jesus. And so it's important for us to understand what Jesus is saying or what Scripture is saying to us through these stories and, and try to figure out what the Holy Spirit wants us to know. And and so as we think about this story of Mary and Joseph coming to Bethlehem and the nativity scene and, and this wonderful image of, of Jesus being laid in the manger surrounded by, you know, the cows and the sheep and the camels and all that stuff, we, we really want to find ourselves in this story. And, and so this is often what we see in this as we consider this story. We see sort of in our mind, we see Joseph walking to Bethlehem and, and Mary sitting on a donkey and him pulling her along. And, and uh, there's hundreds of other people trying to get to Bethlehem to register and, and they're all passing Mary and Joseph on their way to Bethlehem because she's pregnant and, and they, she's been on this camel for three or four days and she's bouncing around and she can't get comfortable and, and, and they're trying to make good time and Joseph is pressing but Mary keeps asking for uh, potty breaks because she's pregnant and so every 15 minutes you know she's like ah Joseph I gotta go and Joseph is like Mary for crying out loud stop 
drinking, you know. Um, we got to get going. And so they have to take all their potty breaks and stuff like that. And then she has these weird cravings, these pregnancy cravings. And they have to stop for, like, pickles and ice cream and whatever pregnant ladies want. And so they're, they're moving kind of slow. And as they're on their way to Bethlehem, everybody else is passing them. And finally they roll into Bethlehem. And um, they look around. And there's a lot of people there. And all the other travelers have already checked into their hotel, right? You can see all these other little kids swimming and, and, and making a mess in the pool and the, the towels are everywhere and they're just kind of being crazy and so they're like, oh man, this is going to be difficult to find a place to stay. This is kind of what we see in our minds, yes? We filter this through our own little cultural constructs and then so we kind of see them like walking up to the Hilton because that's the first one that they come to and so... You know, he says, honey, you know, you stay out here. I'll go take care of it. And Joseph goes in, and he's like, hey, we're looking for a room. My wife's pregnant. She needs to lay down. Um, do you got any place for us? And the Hilton says, sorry, no vacancy. We don't have any room here available. He's like, okay, I kind of figured. You know, I, knew, I know there's a lot of people in town. And so they, they cross the street over there, and they check the Amerisuites. And they go in, and they ask for a room. And the, the, the clerk, the hotel clerk says, sorry, you know, we don't have anything available. And so they go down the street to the Ramada and they get the same, you know, there's no room, no vacancy. I'm sorry. Nothing is available. They go to the Days Inn. They go to Super 8. They go to the, the Motel 6 and the light wasn't on for them at all. You know, no vacancy and stuff. And get out of here. You can't stay. And in our mind, we sort of <clears throat> fill these stories in. And we can kind of see them uh, stumbling onto the edge of town, frustrated, tired, sore, and cranky. Stumbling onto uh, a little old family-owned hotel at the edge of town called The Stables, right? We, we see this, at least I do in my mind. And this, The Stables Hotel is run by a sweet little old couple, Ma and Pa, and, and you know, they're doing their best to keep up with the, the, the hotel chains that are around, and, and they see this, this tired couple come in, and they're all booked up as well, but, but Ma looks at this couple, and she says to Pa, she says, Pa, we can't let this poor couple go out in the cold, and we got to do whatever we can, and so Pa says, look, lady, we're all full, and because that's what he calls her, her little, his little old lady, but he calls her lady because he's frustrated with her right now, and so he says, look, lady, we're all full, we don't have any rooms, the only place we have is, is the garage, the stables, the real stables out back, the barn, and, and I'm not going to put them up there, and, and so Ma's like, well, we got to do something, and so Pa finally says, well, okay, I'll tell you what. I'll let them stay in the barn, but I'm going to charge them full price. And so you know, they're like happy to find this place to stay in the barn, in the stables. And, and this is sort of the idea that we get that reluctantly this innkeeper says, well, we're all booked up, but I got this place out back that you guys can stay. You know, you're not going to be warm, but you're not going to freeze either. And so we're like, oh, that's so nice that he went out of his way to find that place for them. And and we use this imagery, we sort of push this narrative that even at the first Christmas, the world was rejecting Jesus and there was no place for Jesus. And, and we sort of push this idea that, that the war on Christmas started early and, and, and I get that and, and there is some truth to that. However, most commentaries suggest that this isn't really how it all went down. That, that we may have missed something in, in our cultural translation. Most of the commentaries will, will say that Bethlehem was far too small of a town to have a booming hotel industry, that they didn't have hotel chains. In fact, um, Bethlehem was so small, Scripture tells us that it's not even named in the, in, the, in the clans of Judah. Like It is so small, it's getting left out in a lot of ways. And so it's, it's highly likely that there wasn't even one hotel there in Bethlehem. 
Furthermore, Joseph was going home because that's what was happening there, that they had to go to their hometown to be registered in this census. And so he would have gone back home where family and friends lived, and, and it would have been a small, tight-knit community that everybody knew everybody else, and everybody was kind of connected with everybody else. And, and even the book of Ruth in the Old Testament tells us that, that when Ruth had left to Moab, when she came back, the whole town was talking about it because it was such a small town. And so, so people would have known everybody who's coming in. There would have not been a stranger on the street. They knew who people were. Finally, the Bible tells us that, that that in this time, hospitality was extremely important. So to turn somebody away who was a traveler or who was a family member that was looking for a place to stay would have been considered a terrible, terrible offense. So what these scholars suggest is that the hotel narrative is, is wrong and that we have filtered what's happening then through what we sort of envision now in our holiday travels. And they, they say that the, the word inn in verse 7, where it says there was no place for him, for them in the inn, so that's why he had to you know, stay in the barn and, and lay him in a manger. Um, they said the word inn would have been probably better translated as the word guest room. So Joseph and Mary are not coming into Bethlehem trusting in a consumeristic, profit-driven hotel system. They're not hoping in the kindness of strangers, but they're counting on the hospitality of family and friends. They're coming in, counting on the fact that those people that are closest with them, those people in their family, those people that, that know them, those people that have some sort of family relationship with them are going to make room for them and take care of them. And sort of what we surmise is that when they get to Bethlehem, all the other travelers that were going to stay with this family had gotten there first because, you know, Mary was pregnant. She was taking forever, right? So the guest room is full when they get to the house. All the couches have been spoken for. All the air mattresses have been claimed. There is no place for them to stay at all. There's no room for Joseph and little pregnant Mary. So essentially what the owners of the home say is like, look, we have no room. Every square inch of my house has been spoken for. The only place that you can stay is the garage. You can stay in the barn out back. You can stay in the cave out behind the house. And this narrative is still somewhat familiar, is familiar to, to what we see. It's not altogether different, but there is this one thing that is fundamentally different about the hotel narrative versus the, the family guest room narrative. And it's this. In the hotel version of this story, we get to blame somebody else. In the, in the hotel version of this story, we can't see ourselves in this anywhere. Because it's Jesus, and we're obviously not Jesus, and it's the world rejecting Jesus. And, and so we get to blame the innkeepers. We get to blame those money-hungry, greedy, you know, consumeristic, the world that is at the very beginning rejecting Jesus and not wanting to have anything to do with that. And so we love the hotel version because we get to blame somebody else. We get to blame the innkeeper, and we get to blame the world. And we do this all the time. We do this even now, especially in the Christmas season. Um, we blame and blame and blame. We get righteously indignant when somebody says, happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas. And look, I get it. I think that we need to be saying Merry Christmas. 
I think we need to, to honor Christ and say, look, it's not just Christmas time that Christ is the center of my life. It's all time. But especially now when we celebrate his birth, I'm going to say Merry Christmas. And we're going to honor him in any way we can. Like, like I, I get that. But, but what we do is, is we get really sort of angry, aggressive when somebody has the audacity to say happy holidays, when, when unbelievers say happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas. And, and we act surprised that we live in a world that is in mass rejecting Jesus. When the reality is, if you've read the New Testament at all, you realize that if you give your heart to Christ and you live as a believer, you are going to be in the minority. Let me say that again. If you give your heart to Jesus and you live your life as a believing Christ follower, you are going to be in the minority. Scripture says that broad is the way that leads to hell and many will find it. Narrow is the path that leads to life and few will find it. You will be in the minority. And so it shouldn't surprise us that the same world that murdered Jesus is now rejecting Jesus. But it's easy for us to have this blame others mentality. We get offended by the new Starbucks holiday cup, right? And we don't have to look internally. We just get to blame somebody else. Man, those greedy Starbucks people. We get to blame the innkeeper. We get to blame the world. We get to stand separated. We get to brag that in the midst of all this holiday consumerism, we're not going to forget the real reason of the season. And when we see moms running through the store and knocking over 10-year-olds like she's a linebacker for the Denver Broncos to, to get to the video game section first so that she can buy or she can save $10 on the new Grand Theft Auto game for her 7-year-old, right? We can step back and sort of cast blame and say, oh, see, Christmas is about Jesus and not all these things and stuff and, and all this other stuff. So I'm going to honor God by doing my holiday shopping online so I don't have to punch anybody in the face, praise God. Right? Right? And we get to stand back and we get to blame and we get to say, what a shame that the world is rejecting Jesus. What a shame that we have all these innkeepers that don't know what the reason for the season is. And we're surprised by that. I don't know if this is you know, true or not. I saw this video going around over Thanksgiving, and it was these two guys, and they were talking to that new Amazon Alexa, that Google Alexa. I don't know what it is. It's, it's that, um, that device that, you know, in your home, and you talk to it, and it talks back, and it gives you all those things. You, you know what I'm talking about. And, um, and they were, I was watching some stuff, and, and they were talking to this thing, and they were asking this thing, like, who is Buddha? Who's this? And who's that? Asking them some religious questions. And whether this is 100% true or doctored or what, I, I, I don't know. I saw both sides of it. But they said, they asked this thing, who is Jesus? And this Alexa machine answered back, Jesus is a fictional character. And right? And everybody's like, oh, I can't believe that. Why? I mean, this is a world that is rejecting Jesus. That, that doesn't come as, as any big surprise that we live in a world that has rejected Jesus or that is rejecting Jesus. But the problem is we separate ourselves and we say, you have rejected Jesus, you're at fault, we blame you, and I am free from any sort of responsibility. We do this all the time. We look at Hollywood and what's going on with Hollywood right now. 
and we, we feel sad and we feel offended how they portray Christians and how they portray Jesus in, in TV and movies. And, and then we hear one scandal after another after another and we're shocked when we hear about the latest or our, our, our latest favorite celebrity being exposed as just a deviant dirtbag. And we sit back and we blame the innkeeper and say, the world has rejected Jesus. What a shame. We say it's somebody else's fault. They're not making much of Jesus. It's their fault. It's their fault. And if you ask me, I think that it's a little disingenuous that we are shocked at the perversion that we hear goes on behind the scenes in Hollywood. But we are aggressive consumers of the perversion that happens on the screen in Hollywood. And so it's really easy for us to sort of separate ourselves and say, oh man, they're to blame, they're to blame, they're to blame all the time consuming all of this garbage that they're putting out. But hey, as long as we have the innkeeper to blame, we get to maintain our false sense of righteousness. And as long as we keep our eyes on the problems around us, we will never clearly see the issues within us. And if we're looking at the problems around us, Oblivious to the issues within us, we are going to miss the Messiah that is near us. And so we have to stop blaming the innkeeper. We have to stop blaming the innkeeper because essentially the gospel has always been about a personal response. How are you going to respond to the gift that was given to this earth on that very first Christmas night? The reality of this portion of the Christmas story is that those who should have been the most accepting of Jesus, those who should have been the most accommodating of Jesus, those who, have sh- those who should have been the most readily available to make a sacrifice for Jesus, to welcome this new baby into the world and to celebrate the Messiah, those who, who, who should have known who this Jesus was were the ones that put him in the garage. Those were the ones that said, sorry, we don't have any room for you. It wasn't the innkeepers who cried, no vacancy. It was those closest that said, in this room, in my home, there's not room for you. I'm not giving you any special treatment. I'm not going to um, change anything about my life to make room for you. There is no room for you in my home. Here's the keys to the garage. And, and when, we, when we look at it that way, I think if we're honest, most of us would, could now begin to see ourselves in this narrative. And we wonder, am I making room for Jesus in my home? At some point this December, chances are pretty high that you will either be staying with some family or you'll have some family staying with you. Um, that's just kind of what happens over this Christmas season. Now, uh, most of you, you're going to get together with family, and you're going to have family that you absolutely love, that you like connecting with, you love playing games with, you love getting around telling stories and, and being silly and laughing and, and all of that stuff you just really, really enjoy. But chances are, probably every one of you, because families are big and they're extended, um, there will be one person in your home or in the home that you're staying with that is super annoying and you just have to tolerate. You know what I'm talking about? How many of you have a family member that you just kind of have to tolerate? You know what I'm saying? Some of you are raising your hands. Others of you are like, no, not me. Well, it's you. You're the one. <laughs> My family's great. And they're like, oh, no, here she comes. Right? And, and sometimes families can be annoying. You know, 
People show up to your house with their special requests and their demands and their, you know, their special treatment. They'll come you know, with their little newborn infant and say, okay, everybody, I know it's four o'clock in the afternoon, but I just laid little Susie down for a nap, so if everybody could stop breathing for the next two hours, that would be awesome. Right? Well, then you shouldn't have got my kid a drum set for Christmas. You know? And they, they have special requests, and then you have the people that come to your house, and, and they'll say, I'm an early bird. I just want everybody to know. I like to be up at 4.30 in the morning. And you want to say, look, if you're rummaging around the kitchen at 4.30 in the morning, I'm going to assume you're a prowler, and prowlers get shot in this house. I'm just saying. <laughs> just saying. So for your safety, I mean, maybe sleep in. You know, maybe. You got those people coming in. Who's got the gluten-free goodies? Where's the gluten, gluten-free goodies? Blech. The gluten-free goodies are in the trash where they belong. Get out of here with those silly requests, right? We're not doing that. We're not doing that. And you're all smiles when everybody else is around. Oh, it's so good to see you. How was your Thanksgiving? How's school going? And then later, you have a secret conversation. You guys know about these secret conversations. You're laying in bed at night. Can you believe what they're asking? Did you hear what she said to me? She said, I look okay. I don't look okay. I look great. You know? And you have these secret conversations, you know, to sort of, you smile to them, but then you can be annoyed with them in the back hallway or in the back room. How many of you know what I'm talking about? We're being real here this morning. Come on. You guys know what I'm talking about? I bet, and I'm speculating a little bit. I'm reading into some things. I bet there was a secret conversation when Joseph and Mary showed up. I bet there was. I bet there was that, that back hallway, that back room conversation. This, the secret conversation that says, um, I can't believe Joseph brought her. She's nine months pregnant. Can you, he's such an idiot. He doesn't love her. And the husband's like, yeah, I know. I, I totally agree with you. I'd never do that to you, right? I, I don't think I would. And they had these secret conversations. What was he thinking? Or I don't know what, I don't know what they want me to do. Well, what can I do now? I mean, there's, everybody's already here. I mean, they've already got their beds made up. Everybody has a, has a space. I mean, they didn't tell me they were coming. I didn't know they were coming. Like, they didn't send the pigeon or anything like that. How was I supposed to know they were coming? I didn't, I didn't assume that Joseph was going to bring his pregnant wife. Like, why would he do that? This is, this is dumb. What does he, I, I can't do anything about it. There's nothing that I can do right now. You know, if she's strong enough to make it three days on a donkey, she's strong enough to sleep with the donkeys. Like, like this is, I'm, there's nothing I can do. Besides that, they aren't even married right? It was their own dumb fault that they're in this situation and, and she's claiming that she's still a virgin, right? Yeah, right. I mean, saying all this God stuff and, and, and everything. Like, like, they're in this, this is their own fault that they're in this situation and they've made these bad choices and they're putting me out because of their bad choices and I'm not going to bend over backwards for them. And, and you know that there were these secret conversations in the back room that were happening so that they could justify their decision to put Joseph and Mary in the garage with the animals. They no doubt had to convince themselves that they were justified in this conclusion, that they had no room for Jesus. And this narrative, and we're about to close here, this narrative makes the application process for us 
a little bit more personal and a whole lot more painful. Because I would say that for the majority of us, we simply tolerate Jesus. A little bit more in December than we do the rest of the months, but, but we just simply tolerate him rather than embrace him, rather than make room for him or change anything about our lives or make any sort of sacrifices to put him in the middle of our lives. We think if Jesus is going to be in my life, then he has to play by my rules. He better not inconvenience me in any way. After all, I'm putting him up. After all, he's staying with me. Jesus is fine to stay with us as long as he doesn't disrupt my comfort level, as long as he doesn't cost me anything. Jesus is fine to hang out, right? But I'm still gonna do my thing. I'm still gonna live my life. I'm not gonna change anything. If he wants to stay, he can stay in the garage because there's no room for him in my life. And you'll be able to find plenty of reasons to justify your decision to put Jesus in the garage. You think, you know, it's not like I don't like him. You know, it's fine. It's just that there's no room for him. I got my job, and man, that takes up all my time. I got my kids, my family, my relationships, my church. I'll be honest with you. There are times that I can get so busy with the church that I have no room for Jesus. I feel the Holy Spirit speaking to me like, hey, you know, I was just wondering if I could hang out with you for a little. Sorry, Jesus, no room. I'm working at the church. We do this, and we, we fill our lives up with good things, and then we, we look to Jesus, and we say, sorry, there's no room for you. And I want you to see something here, and I believe the Holy Spirit is trying to show us a picture of the church here this morning, and, and I, I believe that we are coming to a critical place in the life of the church in America. And for far too long, we have refused to make room for Jesus in our lives, all the while blaming the innkeeper for rejecting Jesus. And the truth is, the world will never embrace a Jesus that we merely tolerate. The world will never embrace a Jesus that we merely tolerate. Stand your feet all across this place. So my question for you this morning, as we conclude our time together, is just simple. Is there room in your life for Jesus? When following Jesus inconveniences your day, do you still make room for him? When following Jesus costs you something, do you still make room for him? Or do you fall into the default mode of simply blaming the innkeeper and saying it's the world's fault, it's their fault. When when you have the choice to, to make Jesus the center of your life or relegate him to the back room, what do you do? Do you have room in your life for Jesus? Is there room in your life for Jesus daily? Is there room in, in, in your life, or is there room for Jesus in your finances? Is there room for Jesus in your marriage? Is there room for Jesus in your relationship? Is there room for Jesus in your retirement? Is there room for Jesus in your choices and in your thought, in your decisions, and in your, your media consumption? Is there room for Jesus? Because something strange happens. When you begin to open up your life, and you begin to make room for Jesus. When he becomes front and center, you realize that Jesus isn't a burden, he's a gift. You realize that as Jesus comes to your life and takes front and center where he belongs, he he doesn't come at a cost, he's paid the cost. 
You realize that when Jesus begins to live front and center in your life, you don't have to sacrifice anything to have him there. He's sacrificed everything to be there. It is all him doing all the work. We just get to receive all the blessings of it. What happens is, as you begin to make Jesus front and center in your life, others will begin to see the changes that are happening in your life and in your family and in your thoughts and in your decisions and in your, your face and, and, and they'll see anxiety and fear and doubt and worry and all that stuff fall off and they'll think, man, if, if they're making room for Jesus and, and God is, is showing his favor on their life, maybe, that I can, maybe I can make room for Jesus too. So the question is simply, are you blaming the world or are you making room for Jesus? enjoyed today's message. If you'd like to connect with us or if you want more information about North Shore Church, please visit mynsag.com.